This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org/news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org/news. Click subscribe. Welcome to the Science Podcast for March 22nd, 2019. I'm Megan Cantwell. In this week's show, I talk to Paul Vusin about the feasibility of mining valuable metals in the deep sea. And I also speak with Seiji Sugita about Hayabusa 2, a sample return mission to the asteroid Ryugu, over 180 million miles from Earth. You've probably seen photos of the otherworldly creatures that reside at the bottom of the ocean. But there are more than just amazing organisms down there. There's also an opportunity for profit. I'm here with staff writer Paul Vusen to talk about an expedition to better understand these treasures. Hey, Paul. Hello. What is the treasure at the bottom of the ocean? There are a few different kinds, but really it's these rare metals that are often produced on land as a byproduct of more traditional metals like copper, but these are things like cobalt that are, you know, used in batteries and phones, and they are found in these polymetallic nodules on the uh, seafloor. How big are these nodules? Uh, a potato size. Everyone says they're potato sized. <laughs> not like not like easy to bite into potatoes, bigger potatoes, right? Which mm-hmm. seems pretty substantial. Then. Yeah, fairly substantial potatoes. <laughs> so where exactly are these nodules found in the ocean? They're found in all the oceans, research has shown, but they're particularly found in these regions where you have deep abyssal plains, you know, down four kilometers. This particular zone of interest is between Hawaii and Mexico, where you're, we're expecting deep sea mining to potentially start at some point. And they're usually caused by enough life being at the surface that that carbon gets down to the seafloor to prime some of the reactions that cause these metals to leach out onto uh, little things like shark teeth. There are also microbes that settle on these nodules. Are there things that researchers can learn from that? 
there are probably microbes involved in kind of the formation. You know, they power the chemical reactions that allow you know, the oxygen-rich conditions that cause these to form. And then also you have corals and other things that live specifically on the nodules. And most of them are new to science when they're pulled up because these are regions that have not really been explored that much. They're part of the ecosystem. It's not like it's just nodule laying there, nothing no, else around yeah. it. I mean, like in- everywhere on Earth, wherever we look, there is life. How big is the collector that's set to potentially vacuum these nodules? So this is a pre-prototype. So it's not a full-size collector, but despite that, it's the size of maybe about a school bus. Oh, wow. So, you know, big. it's it's big already. They're not sending these nodules back up to the surface this time. They're just doing the small-scale test to look at the environmental impacts and, you know, see if this actually works, that they're able to suck these nodules up and they stick them in a hopper, dump them back out on the seat. So they're not actually looking at the nodules this time, but who is the group that's orchestrating this research to see what the environmental impact is and how are they going about it? You have this Belgian dredging company that is doing this trial. They're collaborating with a independent group of European scientists uh, you know, funded uh, by Europe that are taking out another ship and they're going to be looking at the collector, that's what it's called, as it operates in these two small regions. And and they'll be, have this array of sensors on autonomous vehicles, these you know little kind of torpedo-looking things, a remotely operated vehicle, and a bunch of other platforms that will monitor everything that goes down. What are they hoping to learn? So the big question in particular is about the plume, so mm-hmm. the, the silt and sediment that gets stirred up as the collector goes. These realms, it's some of the clearest water in the ocean because the, the sediment rates are so low. That's part of why the nodules can form. And once you have this collector going through, it might stir up the silt and dump a bunch of it, you know, a millimeter, centimeter on these life forms that are unused to that kind of accumulation. So the question is, how far is that silt spread? There's very little data right now. So this will provide that data. How long is this expedition lasting? And when will there be some results to see what the impact of this mining was on the environment? So, you know, it's going on uh, this April for pretty much all of April, the actual trials will take place in two sites, probably over a period of a little over a week in each one. And the German scientists, they're completely independent. They're going to be releasing all of their data publicly. They're going to have their first whack at it. So I'm not sure the exact timetable of when they will publish those results. I imagine it'll be in, within the next year, you'll start seeing bits and pieces coming out. Deep sea mining has been a thought for a while, but why is it that it's actually gaining traction now? Are we running out of some of these metals? A lot of people don't love where, you know, how they're mined on mm-hmm. land. You know, often it's in rainforest and often bad conditions in uh, Democratic Republic of the Congo or other elsewhere. The technology has gotten better, so it's becoming somewhat more feasible. And the demand for these metals, particularly cobalt, people aren't projecting that to go away at all because mm-hmm. renewable power in particular that needs a lot of cobalt. If you're going to get off oil, you might need more of these metals. That's the pitch the industry is making in particular. Mm, okay. And this isn't the first expedition, right, to kind of study what the environmental impacts might be? The kind of interest in this has waxed and waned, right, mm-hmm. since the 60s. People in the past have done these kind of simulated trials where they you know, dredge at the bottom of a seafloor. They don't have the kind of the technology we have to really monitor it that well. That's been more looking at long-term impacts. So, you know, one of these sites is off Peru that they did in the late 1980s. Researchers returned there about three years ago, three and a half years ago, and found these tracks looked fresh, like they had been made the day before, just showing how long this ecosystem takes to bounce back from disturbance. 
what exactly do we know about the deep sea environment so far? I mean, so little of it has been explored. Yeah, you know, the things that really get a lot of attention are things like hydrothermal vents that, you know, are kind of rich with life and these kind of charismatic creatures. So these nodule realms, I mean, it's expensive to get down there. Mm -hmm. It just hasn't been much opportunity. Now that you, you have this interest, it's prompting a lot of scientific research. I believe it was the Moore Foundation funded another survey into the place called the Clar Clarion Clipperton Zone between uh, Hawaii and Mexico to look at the deep sea life there. And they're just finding a host of kind of strange and interesting creatures that I think in the East, one survey found 70% of them were new to science. So a lot could be lost potentially. Potentially, but you know, these are big, we're losing a lot now. It's a, it's mm -hmm. a tough call, right? Yeah. If the earth had never been mined and you were choosing between mining rainforest mm -hmm. or mining these environments on the seafloor, it's, it's not the easiest call. It's a complex decision. So scientists really they're trying to be pragmatic in how they approach this and mm -hmm. think if this is going to happen, let's, you know, try and understand the impacts, try and make sure we are protecting regions. And, you know, this is really the first extractive industry to come about with environmental concerns factoring in from the start. So since the UN is governing this, there's some hope that they'll be done somewhat responsibly. And this is an international water, so they still have to figure out who would even be allowed to mine here, right? Yeah. So the UN has this body called the International Seabed Authority that governs the international waters exploitation. And they're still drafting rules for exploitation. Probably won't happen for another few years. This expedition will probably go into informing those rules. The mining isn't going to happen for a while then. Yeah. I mean, most projections seem to be late next decade, but you never know. Thanks so much, Paul. Yeah. Thank you. Stay tuned for my interview with Seiji Sugita about what his team has learned so far from Hayabusa 2. In 2014, Hayabusa 2 was launched, and in June of 2018, it reached its target, the asteroid Ryugu, which is located between Earth and Mars. Just last month, Hayabusa 2 collected a sample of the asteroid. I'm here with Seiji Sugita to talk about what his team has learned from the mission so far, and what they hope to understand about the asteroid once the sample returns to Earth. Thanks for joining me, Seiji. Thank you, and it's really a great pleasure to be here. First, I want to talk a little bit about the fact that this is Hayabusa 2. What happened on the first expedition with just Hayabusa? The original Hayabusa went to S-type asteroid. It's a world without water or hydrous mineral. We had a little problem here and there, but we finally made it back to the Earth with small pieces of rock and almost like a dust particles of a asteroid Itokawa that really demonstrated the capability of JAXA and the engineers that we can do a round trip to a small asteroid and bring back sample to the Earth. The first Hayabusa was with what you said was an S-type asteroid, and Hayabusa 2's expedition is to Ryugu, which is a C-type asteroid. Could you talk about what that means and why you specifically chose this type of asteroid? C-type asteroid, the C stands for carbon. C-type asteroid is considered to be carbon because the color is very black and then estimated to have a lot of water and organics and carbon-bearing material. Those are ingredients for life. If it really gets supply to the surface of planetary bodies, such as Earth and Mars, that's why C-type asteroid is far more interesting to scientists to explore. 
one of the main goals of the mission is to return a sample from this asteroid home. And although it's not going to be back for a while, what kind of tests do you hope to run and understand about the asteroid once the sample does come back? There are a series of questions we'd like to address. The content of water and then the kinds of organics and also isotopic characterizations of water molecules and the organic molecules. By identifying the isotopic composition, we can probably identify where in the solar system or what kind of condition of a location within the solar system those materials are coming from. Those are very important pieces of information for understanding the evolution of the solar system or the supply mechanisms of organics and water in the solar system to Earth and other planetary bodies. Initially, the plan was to get three samples from this asteroid, but that may not be the case now. The first touchdown was so difficult because the, the surface of Ryugu was covered with the, uh, all kinds of different large boulders. And it was very difficult to find a good location. And then uh, the engineers had to really upgrade and improve the technique to make a really high precision pinpoint touchdown. But that happened. So that consumed a lot of uh, time. So mm -hmm. most likely reduced down to uh, two touchdowns in uh, two different locations. So the touchdown was successful then, but you don't know yet how much of the sample you got from the asteroid? We don't have a mechanism to measure the amount of asteroid or the samples on our spacecraft. However, I'm an irresponsible dreaming scientist that we have a very hopeful finding with a lot of pebbles and fragments coming out of the touchdown sites. Those must have got into the uh, sampler horn and then the sample capsule mechanisms. Hayabusa 2 still has a long journey home, but that doesn't mean that you haven't learned things already since it's been surveying the asteroid for a couple of months. And your team has three papers coming out in science that talk a little bit about what you've learned so far. Several series of uh, findings we made. The first one, it has a shape very close to a spinning top. It probably was formed when Ryugu was spinning at a much faster spinning rate than now. Mm -hmm. So that really shows that this type of a small asteroid may change its uh, spinning state quite often or quite rapidly. We don't know the profound implication for this, but it's a very important piece of information. And also it's a basis of understanding this type of uh, asteroid. So that's number one. Another important finding was its bulk density. It turns out to be very light. It's only 1.2 grams per cubic centimeters. Making a 1.2 grams per cc requires a lot of pores. So the, the pore volume ratio is as, a, as high as 50%. So half of the, the rigor is a void. This really is possible only if Ryugu is a so-called rubble pile, the jumble of all kinds of fragments and then debris just randomly packed loosely together with its gravity. That's the only way we can think of to make 1.2 grams per cc. You were also able to study the surface composition of the asteroid as well, right? That's right. As for the composition, uh, we found a couple of pieces of uh, very important information. Hydrated mineral, 
the mineral that has reacted with the liquid water, those material we thought was quite abundant on the surface of Ryugu, but mm -hmm. the, uh, our measurement has shown that the amount of hydrated minerals is not as abundant as we were thinking. So the hydrated minerals were less abundant than you thought they'd be. Does this provide any clues for how Ryugu might have formed? The original theory or idea is that those asteroids are created in a very low temperature location of the solar system. Then that automatically retains a lot of water or water-bearing minerals. And then when it hits planetary bodies such as Earth, we will have a lot of supply of water or other so-called volatile elements like organics and carbon-bearing molecules. But now, after looking at the moderately dehydrated asteroid, the parent body processes that sitting between the accretion and then the final evolution of the asteroid changes the degree or the amount of water and other volatiles in the course of evolution. So even if those asteroids or its parent body accreted in a cold place, if the evolution, subsequent evolution within the parent body really lose those volatiles, we don't necessarily receive too much water or organics in the solar system. So there's one more important process that really controls the amount of life's ingredient available on a large planetary surfaces. Speaking of how the asteroid formed, does the color give you any insight about that process? Our camera can take a distribution of a different colors of Rigu. And then the color really tells us about the difference in mineralogical variation. Our observation showed that the material on the surface of Rigu is quite homogeneous. Individual particles or boulders of Rigu are very similar to each other. So parent body of a Rigu must be quite homogeneous. And then the only way we can think of to make the homogeneity of a Ryugu parent body is a radiogenic heating in its parent body. Radiogenic heating is heating due to the decay of radioactive isotopes. Those isotopes breaks down and then in the process of a decay, it generates heat. Subsequently, dehydrations and other metamorphism happens as opposed to impact-generated heat and other mechanisms. The, the homogeneity or heterogeneity of a Ryugu surface can constrain the process that must have happening in the parent body of Ryugu. Do you have an idea of when Ryugu's parent body might have formed? Ryugu's parent body was formed in the, the early evolution of the solar system or at the same time as the, the planetary system in the solar system. There's currently another sample return mission happening from NASA, OSIRIS-REx. Could you talk about how your study complements NASA's expedition? There are a lot of surprising things we learned by comparing OSIRIS-REx uh, results and then uh, HYBSAT-2 uh, result. OSIRIS-REx is uh, studying a little smaller size asteroid called the Bennu. Bennu is another top-shaped, fast-spinning asteroid. And its color is very black, very similar to Ryugu. It probably have a lot of carbon, like Ryugu. The rubble pile nature is also very similar. But the water abundance of Bennu, it's so much more 
than Rigu. So there are a lot of similarities. However, somehow water abundance is quite different. And even their parent bodies may be the same. So how can we really make such contrasting bodies out of such a similarity? When we find out why there's such a difference, that would really place a very important constraint. Only a really great answer can resolve this problem. So I think we have a very important piece of information to work on for years and possibly, not hopefully not decade, but the <laughs> many years of time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Seiji Sugita is a professor at the University of Tokyo in the Department of Earth and Planetary Science and principal investigator of the optical navigation camera of Hayabusa 2. You can find a link to his research at sciencemag.org slash podcasts. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get your podcasts, or you can listen on the science website. That's sciencemag.org slash podcasts. To place an ad on the science podcast, contact midroll.com. This show was produced by Megan Cantwell and Sarah Crespi and edited by Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.